Welcome, you are listening to LEAP, the podcast series that brings you interviews with leading scholars in law, economics and philosophy. We are Lynn Jonsudan, Jeroen van der Wen and Jaap Bai. With us today is Shana Shafrin, Professor of Philosophy and Pete Cameron, Professor of Law and Social Justice at UCLA. She's a distinguished scholar with a remarkable list of publications in the areas of moral, political and legal philosophy. And today we will talk about her work in contract law theory, in which she has developed refreshing views on, for instance, American legal doctrines such as unconscionability, the relationship between contract regimes and the moral practice of promising, and the immorality of breach of contract. Professor Schifrin, we are honored to have you here. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a great thing you're doing. It's really nice to be here. So perhaps we can start with the basics. Could you explain to us what contract law theory studies? That is to say, what do you understand contract law to be? Um, I understand contract law to be the law of legally enforceable promises. And so you already mentioned promises. In your work, you've discussed the promissory characterization of contracts. Can you elaborate on what this view entails? Sure. Uh, so if you think that contract law is the study of legally enforceable promises, um, you start with the idea that we have a major legal institution dedicated to the enforcement of promises. Um, and in my view, that entails that we need to have reasons why we would dedicate ourselves to devote social institutions to the support and enforcement of contracts. And what those reasons are, which I think celebrate the promissory relationship, um, should be consistent with the lower level doctrines um, of how to deal with particular issues. And those lower level doctrines should be consistent with the overarching um, aim of the social institution. So that's the first thing is that the doctrines we have and their justifications should be consistent with the moral and social significance of promising. And my, the second view is that given the social importance of promising and its importance in our moral lives, how the doctrine and practice of contracts develops should be sensitive to what its effects on the moral culture are because when people make contracts, they're also making promises. Uh, and we should make sure that the rules of contract and the rules of promising don't create tensions for the people who are engaged in both practices at the same time. There seems to be a divide between American lawyers who predominantly understand contracts as legally enforceable promises, as you say, and European lawyers, notably in the civil code traditions, to whom this idea seems uh, somewhat alien and who would uh, rather describe contracts as agreements intended to give rise to uh, binding legal relationships. Um, how would you explain this divergence and is and or should descriptive divergence be relevant for uh, the normative justifications contract theories develop for the law? Um, great, so I primarily see myself as working within um, the Anglo-American uh, common law tradition and really speaking mostly about um, the American system of contract law um, with which I'm most familiar. I don't think that I could give um, any kind of competent description or um, 
diagnosis of why the civil law and the common law have diverged in the way they do, though I recognize the divergence that you're describing. Um, because I'm not a historical scholar, and I'm not actually competent to say much about the civil law. Um, I am curious uh, and somewhat skeptical of the civil law understanding um, because um, it's not evident to me what an agreement is of the kind that takes the form that the contract law deals with if it's not a promise. Um, and I'm also worried about um, the fact that these agreements almost always have to be promises. Uh, and so it concerns me to have a legal institution that treats a morally significant relationship in an entirely different way without characterizing its morally salient properties. And I should mention that the, the morally salient properties of promise are politically relevant. I don't think they're merely a private relation between people um, that has no social significance or political significance. Uh, to have a working democratic polity, we have to be in relationships of trust and be able to count on one another. And promising is one of the ways we do this. And so I'm very curious about the civil law conception of an agreement that isn't a promise that nevertheless is coincident with promises and coextensional with promises. And I'm somewhat skeptical that that divide can be theoretically maintained well, but I haven't spent enough time in the civil law tradition to say anything more than my worry about it. Uh, relating this to your own work, how would you describe your own project? Are you aiming to provide uh, the most uh, convincing justification for what the law as it is sh uh, uh, is, or are you rather aiming to develop a freestanding normative justification for how the law should be? Um, well, so between those two options, probably more the latter than the former. So I'm trying to understand what the best justifications um, for contract law could be um, and how we should think about forming this significant social institution that we have. Um, I, I am oriented toward the doctrines we have to see what wisdom is in them and to try to understand what their justifications could be because I think the, the long-standing practice often has a number of insights from which we can draw and because I think that wise normative change happens gradually and so you should really take quite seriously the doctrines that you have and ask what parts of them um, should be altered and which parts should be retained um, with an eye toward the short and medium term as well as the long term, but merely developing the ideal contract law that has no relation to our own contract law, I think is a very worthwhile project, um, but not the only worthwhile project. You also consider the state's function through contract law to enable and support the practice of contracting, that is to accommodate individual pursuits. With regard to unconscionability and more recently breach of contract, you have argued that the law should not, however, embrace or encourage immoral action. Some contract law theorists, notably those who use economic arguments, might consider this position paternalistic. They would, for instance, consider efficient breach desirable because the law should support activities that make at least one person better off without making anybody worse off. Why do you find their arguments unconvincing? Well, I don't find all um, Pareto uh, 
superior moves, troubling. Um, but I do question whether the efficient breach is one of them, and I question whether Pareto's superiority is a sufficient reason um, for any legal doctrine. So I'll start with why it's not evident to me that it's correct to say the efficient breach makes at least one person better off without making anybody worse off. It seems to me that um, two relevant parties suffer in the efficient breach. The first is the promisee, um, because the promisor and the promisee had a binding relationship. And that binding relationship was supposed to give the promisee something, namely, whatever was contracted for and the power to either demand it or to waive it. And when the promisor breaches because the promisor has a better economic deal, merely compensating the promisee financially does not actually necessarily make the promisee no worse off because the promisee lost the power that she had in the relationship, namely the power to demand or the power to waive. Um, and so what was a bilateral relationship became a unilateral relationship at the election of the promisor. But really the party who should have had the power to make a unilateral decision was the promisee to either demand or to waive. So it strikes me that efficient breach theorists are really only looking at a particular issue of financial compensation. And even they will admit that it's not appropriate to say that at least one person is better off without making anybody worse off, at least in the American system where we don't offer attorney's fees. Um, because the transaction costs are so extraordinary for the promisee to collect. Um, but even putting those issues aside, it strikes me that a financial compensation is not a full picture of what the promissory relationship involves, and that the promisee loses a power that I think is one of the most significant aspects of the promissory relationship. So I would first challenge that conception of the efficient breach. But beyond that, I'd say, look, um, I don't have any objection to parties engaging in relations outside of the law. Um, I have some moral objections to it, but I don't have a legal objection to it. Uh, but what troubles me about the laws adopting the theory of the efficient breach is that the theory of the efficient breach says that breach of promises in some circumstances a terrific thing, namely when there's a better opportunity that we can take advantage of. That's inconsistent with the entire idea of supporting and celebrating promises, which is the idea that it's important to have commitments in which we share power with one another and to keep those commitments despite predictable changing circumstances. It's predictable that some better things may come along, but it's nevertheless important to keep your commitments to people in, as a, a part of a trust relationship. And this connects then to the second party that I think is um, made worse off by the doctrine and implementation of the efficient breach, I guess um, the rationale of the efficient breach, um, which is it strikes me that the public is uh, wronged and harmed by it um, because we're introducing a, an ambiguity about the significance of promise into our social institutions and conveying that keeping your promises doesn't matter that much if a better option comes along. And if you think that promises matter to our social integrity and to having a working social system in which we can trust one another and not merely be in relationships of um, distrust, looking for forms of security um, to protect ourselves against each other, but we're interested in cooperative relations with one another, then I think we should be very concerned 
about adopting reasons for legal action that um, promote distrust and celebrate promissory infidelity. You already um, related to this in your uh, last answer, but in part of your work you discuss uh, the potential troubling consequences that contract law may have on our ethical lives, and in, in particular for our ethical practice of promising. Um, what in, in your view should we be concerned about, and perhaps could you give an example of a very concrete situation in which you see such a problem? Sure. So I think what we should be um, concerned about is the degree to which, um, if it does, contract law um, suggests in either the effects of its doctrines or in the rationales of its doctrines that we shouldn't take promises seriously, um, that we should entirely monetize promises and think of them only in financial terms. Uh, uh, in terms of monetary damages instead of understanding them also as important moral relationships that have uh, a public dimension to them. So uh, using the efficient breach as a reason for um, not giving specific performance or for um, refusing to ever give punitive damages, that rationale should be public, but that rationale it strikes me is in conflict with um, thinking of promises as more than merely a financial transaction. Um, I've talked a little bit as well about the um, mitigation doctrine, um, that the uh, promisee cannot collect damages that she instead could have mitigated. And though I think there's something underlying that doctrine that's sensible, um, it strikes me that the promisor and the promisee should, where possible, share uh, the duty to mitigate the damages caused by the promisor's breach. Um, and that where the promisor is able to mitigate that damage and the promise, the promisee should have the power to insist on it or to waive it because that's the significance of having made a commitment in the first place. Whereas the way the mitigation doctrine is understood, again, seems to only monetize um, uh, the significance of breach uh, and the arguments that are often given for it are that the promisee may more efficiently or cheaply mitigate. And while I'm not convinced that that's true, it strikes me as, again, not thinking as seriously as you could about the fact that the promisor is also, in, in cases of intentional breach, done a wrong to the promisee, um, and that we should ask if there are other ways of taking that more seriously. Well, in the legal um, discipline, we now see uh, a move towards more empirical uh, mm -hmm. research. And um, in relation to uh, the potential troubling consequences you see in contract law, some people may, may say, well, how will we know what those consequences actually are in, um, on our moral practice or on our ethical practice? So um, do you think contract lawyers should focus more on empirical research even in those areas that you address? Sure. Um, I'm always a little reluctant to say what people should do <laughs> research about. But um, I do think it, it's worthwhile keeping an eye out for the sociological consequences of legal institutions and to see to what extent a legal institution may affect other kinds of social relations. There. Um, there's a move to do a lot of empirical, experimental empirical work in contract. I think it's really interesting. But um, one thing I think has fallen uh, a little bit in prominence in the legal academy in the United States is sociological research. Um, and 
it strikes me that some of the arguments I'm making suggest we should keep a greater eye to sociology and ask questions like, do business people take, who may be involved more often in um, intentional breach for efficiency purposes, do they, do they take their promises less seriously? If you routinely hire and fire employees uh, without a concern for uh, their emotional welfare, are you less likely to take the emotional welfare of other people into account? The, those kinds of things are the kinds of questions I think are really interesting to ask. Um, so I'd welcome it, but I'm, I'm not really dedicated to criticizing the work that people are doing at the moment, which I also think is really interesting. We just probably need more people doing contract work. Okay, well, Professor Schifrin, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. It's great. This was LEAP, a podcast series of the Center for the Study of European Contract Law at the University of Amsterdam. The series is made in association with the Amsterdam Center for Law and Economics. For more information and more episodes, please visit us at www.jur.uva.nl/leap. Thank you for listening.